Welcome to the shit show of my 20s. My name's Sophia. I'm a 20-year-old from California, personal development junkie. I'm a loan officer by day, podcaster on the weekends. I've always loved listening to podcasts. My personal development journey started early in high school when my ex broke up with me, and I just didn't know how to handle it. So I googled how to get over your ex, and I went and saw all these articles about personal development and really working on yourself. So I was like, you know what? I'll give it a try. And I got into one podcast. It all started with the School of Greatness with Lewis Howes. And then I just started to spiral and see Tony Robbins and just see everything and see everyone and listen to Angie Lee. And I've always wanted to start a podcast, but I've always gotten my own way. So I pushed it off for a couple years. And then I got furloughed from my job back in April and I decided, you know what, now's the time. It's either going to happen now or it's never going to happen. So I just did it and I started and I post, I sent all these TMs to so many different people. I thought so many people were going to say no. And to my surprise, a lot of people said yes. So I ended up overbooking myself doing three to four interviews a day for the first couple weeks was furloughed for 10 weeks and really maximized on that time and just did a ton of interviews and it's been incredible getting to interview so many different people from so many different walks of life and just hear about their struggles and how they were able to overcome them and reflect back on their 20s. I've interviewed such a variety of people from therapists to a chef who called off her engagement and called in the one to a singer to multi-seven-figure entrepreneurs to a real estate investor who retired at 27 is making over five figures of passive income every month. And it's been so incredible to hear these stories and these unfiltered conversations and just being able to ask any question that I want. And if there's one thing I want you guys to get out of this podcast, it's just to really live full out because you never know when You never know if you have tomorrow. We really only have today in this moment, so might as well just live full out. If any of these topics resonate or any of the episodes resonate with you, I would really love if you would leave a review and share it with a friend who you think it might resonate with. Today's guest is Elisa. I love chatting with her. We talk about her journey from going all in in sports. She was part of Team Canada's mogul team. She was on her route to the Olympics. She almost qualified, but she didn't make it by a very short shot. And then she goes into this downward spiral and she ends up gaining 85 pounds. And then she has this massive wake up call before her 30th birthday. We go into taking responsibility of your life, wake up calls, and so much more. So let's get started. Thank you so much, Elisa, for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you. I would love to know about your background, your story. How did you get to the place you're at right now? Oh, yeah. I love it. Well, thank you for having me on the show. I am really stoked about this. And I love your show and talking about the shit show (laughs) of anyone's life. (laughs) So, yeah. So getting to know me. Oh, man, where do we start? There's so many things. Like... (laughs) Wherever part you feel drawn to, wherever you feel like your story really starts. Okay. My story, probably the most significant thing that happened in my life was skiing. So I am a passionate 
skier. I started when I was like, I don't know, four or five years old. And my goal was always to go to the Olympics. So all I wanted to do growing up was be an Olympian. In fact, I thought I was going to go for gymnastics. When I was young, I was in gymnastics. I think my mom put me in there when I was like six, maybe. Um, and I got really, really good at gymnastics and really fast. And by the time I was nine, I was tracking to go to see the Olympics. I was on this pre-competitive team. And then this one particular coach told me that I wasn't flexible enough. And then I had to do the splits and get like my pubic bone to touch the ground. And I had eight weeks to do it or else I couldn't advance. So that was like massive incentive for me. So I trained so, so hard. I tried to get flexible, but like I have kind of like a stocky, more athletic, strong body versus like a very limber (laughs) body. And at nine years old, my dreams of going to the Olympic games were crushed by this coach because I couldn't, I was like an inch off the ground. Um, So I basically, you know, thought that was it. (laughs) until I went into the sport of skiing. I took skiing to the next level and I was a mogul skier. So the bumps and jumps, I was an acrobat. I I had an, my, my, my time as a gymnast really shaped my career in mogul skiing because it gave me those acrobatic skills and transitioning for me because I had such a strong, strong gymnastics background I went into mogul skiing and I advanced very, very quickly. And by the time I was 18, I was standing in the gate of my first world cup, which in the sport of moguls, like people peak at different uh, ages for different sports. And for example, gymnasts peak very young. Like most of the Olympians are, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old in gymnastics, not all of them, but like there's a big trend there. Whereas at 16, 17, 18 in moguls, you're just getting into it. And most Olympians peak in their mid twenties, just put it that way, mid twenties, even some late twenties. So, so yeah, I, I would, I lived to ski. That's all I did. And I chose to not pursue university. I did not go to university. Instead, I really focused on being the best mogul skier I possibly could. And it was a year round training program. I mean, we went, we trained all over the world. There was typically, you know, 10 to 12 world cups a year. I became a world cup champion. I was tracking to go to the Olympic games in 2006 when I was 25 years old and it was like perfect. I was national champion. I was, you know, doing all the things And in the year of Olympic qualifiers, I started to choke, meaning I wasn't performing very well. And I saw, I experienced, so this was like, okay, when, let's just, let's just go back because I have to say like, when you're, when you're one of the best athletes in the world, Arguably, I I was the best athlete in the world on certain days. I I I've won world I've won a world cup. So to get to that spot, there's a lot of decisions that you need to make, or at least have someone else make them for you, to to get to that position. It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of sacrifice, dedication. Like my family, my friends, like everyone was supporting me. The world. My world evolved around skiing 
And I, like, I was in such a small bubble. The, my world was very small. Even though I was traveling all over the place, the only thing I would think about is like, is a very limited space, okay? Because it was, it was basically eat, sleep, breathe, train, moguls. That was it. I missed all the university experiences. I missed a lot of parties. I, I sacrificed. I, I missed birthdays. I missed deaths, like funerals. I missed weddings, like all those things. I just was like, sorry, this is the only thing that matters. So when it, what happened was I started to develop this like incredible pressure <laughs> to perform and this incredible I put it all on myself and I built these foundations of you have to be the best in the world. And once that started to slip or I wasn't the best or I wasn't performing, I hadn't really developed any skills to deal with that and to help me get through it. And as the Olympics started to come up and I was like, I think at the time, like, the year of the Olympic games, I was ranked second. I was the second female in Canada and they were sending four women. So I was sitting in a pretty good spot. I just had to sort of maintain that, which in my brain was like easy to maintain. However, events keep kept going by and I kept making these little mistakes that were putting me in like lower down on the ranking. And I remember the last World Cup that was a qualifier event, all I needed was to get a top 12. So a top 12 finish, which is a finals. You make finals, uh, it was 12. Uh, the, yeah, all I have to do is make finals. So there's a semifinal run and then a finals run. And in my semifinals run, I remember standing in the gate and I was like sick to my stomach. I was literally like, oh my God. For me to make finals is kind of no big deal. I would make finals every week. I was so nervous because I knew if I didn't make it, then I wouldn't go to the games. Like, can you imagine like standing and starting? And it was all this pressure. It was like my whole life was down to this one moment. And I skied my run and I remember feeling I crossed the line and I was like so excited. I was like, yes, I, I did it. I did it. I'm, there's no way that I didn't make finals with that run because I know that I, I know my, I know who I am and I know what it takes to kind of be up there. Anyhow, moguls is a judged sport. And there was a couple judges that judged me sort of harshly in, in many people's eyes. I mean, it wasn't just me. I crossed the line very confidently. However, they put me in 13th position. So I came 13th that day. And my Olympic dreams kind of like melted out of my hands. It slipped through my fingers. And that was a very interesting moment. There was a part of me that died. There was a part of me that was completely lost in the world. My identity as an Olympian slipped through my fingers. And at 25 years old, I, I didn't know what to do about that. I didn't know how to cope. I had no skills. I had, everyone just felt so bad for me. <laughs> I felt so bad for myself. And I, the Canadian Freestyle Ski Association 
basically what happened after that moment, when I found out that I wasn't going to the games, I was actually in Italy. I was in Madonna, this place called Madonna, Italy. I went back to my hotel room and uh, my coach knocked on my door at night. This was like 9 PM. I was like bawling my eyes out crying, like trying to hide from the world and like process what just happened. And they, he, he said, Elisa, there is a bus outside that you need to pack your bags right now and you need to get on that bus and it's going to take you to the Milan airport in Italy. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, what? And they're like, I'm like, why can't I just stay here? Like, and go to the airport tomorrow. Like it's 9 PM. I've had the worst day of my life. And they, they said, because we don't want your negative attitude to affect the Olympians. This is a big moment for many people on the team. And we don't want you around them to ruin that moment. And I was like, oh, so basically I'm a piece of shit and I'm a failure and you want to just shoo us away because we're the nobodies now, which was like a very, like, I can't even believe that that happened, but that's exactly what happened. And there was no plan pre that. Like they didn't say people who aren't going to the games, you have to get on a bus and leave. Like nothing happened like that. It was like basically a knock on the door. You have to get the hell out of here right now. So that's what I did. I like was herded onto a bus and there was like all the losers on the bus. And there was also some world cup athletes that knew that they weren't going to go to the games. They knew they didn't have a chance. There were new rookies on the team or whatever, some support staff as well, like some physios and doctors that were going home. So I get on the bus, I get to the airport at 3am. The airport's not even open. Once the airport opened at 5am, I ended up buying a ticket that cost me $2,138 one way to get home. Cause that's what airlines cost back in 2006. And I flew home and that was literally the end of my career. I didn't continue to ski world cup after the Olympics. Like there's like, there was like five or six uh, world cups afterwards. I was like, forget it. I, went into my room and I don't think I left for about three months. I didn't talk to anybody. I went into a crazy depression. I began to drink every single day and smoke cigarettes. I was like partying. I was eating nonstop. I refused. I said to myself, I'm never doing a squat again. Like, do you know how many squats you have to do when you're a mobile skier? of millions you have to do millions of squats <laughs> uh and I was like I'm never doing one again uh and that was it and then the next thing I knew I was 26 had no job I had no idea what I wanted to do in my life I had no education in in like formal education and I was 230 pounds uh miserable and and yeah, <laughs> I had no idea. I had no skills. I had no skills to help. I was, I was highly anxious, highly depressed. I was seeing a psychologist actually that was uh, assigned to me through the mogul team. And 
I was taking like the, the highest dose of Effexor, which is a anti-anxiety, antidepressant. I was incredibly addicted to it. The side effects were out of, out of hand. So that was another piece to the puzzle that I had to try to navigate. I'm like looking for this help. And I am in no way saying that, that medicine or, or going to psychologists or psychiatrists and getting help is bad. What I'm saying is that my experience with it was very negative, had very negative side effects to my life. And it wasn't a good fit. I was not in alignment with myself. I was basically trying to put a Band-Aid over the wounds, but it was actually creating more wounds. So then I had to like balance like this extreme loss and failure in my life that I couldn't, I didn't know how to cope with. So I was taking medicine, which was like creating all these other problems. It was a disaster. It was a complete disaster. (laughs) going back to your decision you know not to go to college to go all in and skiing and then going kind of against what your parents thought your your life should be and then coming back home you know at 26 how was that like did they say you should go back to college like how was that whole experience for you yeah that was a really interesting time. So my parents are actually divorced. They divorced when I was younger and my mom was very supportive. She was, uh, she loved the sport aspect. She loved the direction that I wanted to go. She loved that I wanted to be an Olympian. My dad, on the other hand, we're very Polish by the way. So my dad was like one of those people that's nothing's ever good enough. You're never good enough. And then my mom was like, I will do anything for you and like martyr herself for me basically. So it was very two yin yang parents. Now my dad was like the type of person that would I'd bring home from high school, like a 96% average. I was like a super high achiever, high performer my whole life in all areas, including school. And he would say things like, what happened to the other 4%? So there was this like, you're never good enough aspect to him. And when I decided to go into sports and not go to school. Now, don't forget back in like 1999, when I graduated high school, there was no like online university. So that was a, there was no, there was, they were starting to get into like a correspondence course element with universities, but there's also no scholarship for freestyle skiing, mainly due to the fact that in Canada, like I live in the East coast, I live in Ottawa, Ontario, there's no snow here year round. I'm not training here year round. I have to travel. We would go over to Europe. We'd go out West, ski in the mountains out West in, in Canada and the U S did a lot of stuff like in Colorado, Utah. And then we were in like Switzerland. So we were traveling year round. It was 230 days a year on the road. Like no university at the time was like equipped to, to do that. Some people would take summer courses, summer correspondence courses, and just basically do university over like 10 years. That wasn't something that interests me. I was actually planning on potentially going back to school after my career was over or when I finished, when I retired. But uh, I, I chose to literally spend a hundred percent of my energy in the sport. Now my dad was like against that. And he was very vocal. He, he really liked that traditional ladder of go to school, get a job, buy a house, get married, have a dog, 
you know, have kids and just stay in that patriarchal mold that so many women are sort of bound to like, and men, I should say women and men. There's just this, this way of life that your parents really push on you and society pushes on you. And I was pushing the boundary of that by being an athlete in the time that I was an athlete. And when it was all over and I was really confused and super lost. And like I said, I felt like a a huge part of me died. The motivation to do anything, let alone like even just like get a job at, I don't know, Tim Hortons or like, you guys don't have Tim Hortons in America. Like, like a gas station, who cares, whatever, get any sort of job whatsoever was like completely non-existent in my mind. Like I, I, I absolutely did not want to do that. So what I ended up doing was I, uh, because I was so good at skiing, um, Ontario freestyle was, so the province that I live in, which would be similar to like a state in the U S they hired me, Ontario freestyle hired me to coach the provincial team. So I started doing that, that first winter of my retirement and I was good at it. And so I started to take coaching. I started to educate myself in the coaching side. So I ended up climbing the ladder and I schooled myself for five years through the national coaching certification program of Canada and became one of the highest ranked female coaches in Canada, not just for my sport, but for multi-sport. So I, my education was very untraditional. I then did, you do a lot of practical theory, ethical uh, performance based uh, studies and yeah, it just wasn't like go to university or college. It was going, it was different. So that, and so in essence, I do have schooling. Um, I do have certifications, high certifications. However, like my parents going to go back, my parents, like my dad was so adamant that what I was doing was wrong and that I would never be successful and that I was basically what he would say in my brain, the way I'd interpret his messages was that I'm making a huge mistake and I'm a piece of shit and I'm never going to amount to anything in my life because I didn't do it the way he did it. And how do you detach from your, yourself from that, from taking those comments and absorbing them? Well, <laughs> a really good question. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because in my twenties, like, Looking back, I, I didn't detach from them. I took them to heart and they were always there. It was like the shadow that I was like my passion and my interest and like my instincts. So like the inner voice in me, the inner knowing wanted to, to be creative and to think outside the box and like push the boundaries of my passion and I would do that but then there was this dark cloud always making me question myself like and 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 second guess and so it was hard for me to put my foot all the way in it was almost like I would I would just tippy toe because like I always felt like I was wrong I don't know if that makes any sense but I always felt like maybe to to live the life that I wanted because I was told from such a young age to, 
to be this other thing. But I wasn't that thing. I didn't fit in that box. And I kind of knew that right away, but I, I pretended for years and years and I sacrificed and I suffered for it because I was pretending to, to be in this other box. Meanwhile, over here, I was creating my own box and my own thing that I loved and being shamed for it. So there, there, I did carry a lot of shame just existing, just being me and, and living for myself. It was very shameful. And I, I hid and I, and I kept quiet about it. And I, I eventually, what happened was I started to, I, I had this massive wake up call when I was, when I was 26 years old, I married a man who was uh, incredibly abusive. Now at the time, don't forget. I had met him when I was like on tracking to the Olympic games. So we were dating a little bit at that time. And he was there when I missed the games and was suffering and depressed and, and gaining weight. And he stuck with me. And I just thought that he was my person because he didn't break up with me when I failed. So I had this epic failure and this, and that was my only reason to stay with him because he didn't break up. He didn't leave. And so I thought I owed him something which is a which is a story that I don't tell a lot of people to be honest like I don't really say that side but I I really thought that he was my person because of that so one day now so fast forward a couple of years and uh I got married and I had a mortgage and I was coaching and I was traveling a lot and I was being abused by someone and mind you don't forget I had I I was I was in this place where I was still a failure the Olympics was like I still didn't know who I was I was realistically abusing myself to the same level in which I was abused so I tolerated it because my inner thoughts and my actions towards myself was so abusive too like the shit I would say to myself, like I was fat, ugly, disgusting pig. I believed that I was worthy of someone abusing me daily. And he was just this reminder that I was a failure and a piece of shit. So I kept him because I wanted, I, I, that was where I believed I needed to be. So, so one day I had this massive, massive wake up call massive. I looked at myself in the mirror and I didn't recognize the reflection looking back at me. I mean, I was 85 pounds heavier. I, I was like this wounded bird who was, who was keep, who kept wounding herself so that I couldn't fly and be this, this image that I thought I was at one point. <laughs> like, it was, I was really not in alignment with myself whatsoever. And I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, Elisa, what the fuck are you doing? Help. You need to help yourself. So am I allowed to swear on this? Sorry. Yeah. I just swore. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I had this, this inner calling, like my instinct, my knowing, my spirit, whatever you want to call it, just like reached out in desperation. And I, I heard it and I was like, okay. And it was just a glimpse. It was like this tiny little message. And 
I kind of, I kind of woke up for a second and then I fell back to sleep and then I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to be divorced and I can't divorce and blah, 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 divorce, divorce. I was, I'm, I'm a recovering Catholic. I mean, I didn't want to go to hell and I didn't want to be shunned by everyone in my Catholic community. And then I was like, I can't live my life like this. This is not who I am. This is not the box I want to be in whatsoever. So I literally had to like break out of the box. And in doing that, I detached myself from my father, from all the toxicity. And this wasn't like a switch that happened overnight. I definitely took, it took me years to do that, but it was like the decision was made. It was like, I have to figure this out. I did not do it alone. I had, I went to spiritual counseling. I started to go to someone who could listen to me and support me and heal me as opposed to slap and coping mechanisms and band-aids on all my wounds. I started to actually like tap into what the wounds actually are. Why am I hurt because of this and heal myself and fill myself up with love. So going back to your original question, I don't know what it was like 30 minutes later. Um, I, (laughs) I, started to do things like recognize and respect my father for giving me life. He is responsible for creating me and I will love and respect him for that. But also to acknowledge that he's a grown, a grown up. He's an adult. I'm a grown ass woman. He's a grown ass man. We no longer are in alignment with each other he is not a father figure to me. So I can respect him as a man who gave me life, but I also am, we haven't had that father daughter relationship that you see in the movies and that girls like just want their dads to approve of them and to validate them. He's never, he has never been that person for me. And I, I saw it. I finally took responsibility for validating myself and for like that whole movement. So I left my husband. I was like, you are the same as my father. I've married my father. And now my dad was not abusive in the same way, but he still, it was the same. It looked a little bit different, but it was the same uh, trauma and pattern of abuse in his own version. And then, yeah. So I had to do a big, I don't know, relationship, emotional detox and understand that I am responsible for filling up my own cup. And that happened when I was 27 years old, 28 years old. And I'd love for you to go into, so when you were in the downward spiral, before you started getting into coaching, was there something that helped you through that? How long did it take you to get into coaching? Well, the opportunity had presented itself quite soon. So the Olympic Games was in 2006, February, 2006. So the day of my break was probably, I don't actually know what day it was. It was probably like January 20th, 2006. Then the Olympics happened. I didn't finish my season. So it was February, March, April. The freestyle team gets selected in May. So I didn't do anything for February, March, April. In May, I was starting to be solicited by some teams because I had announced my retirement. So everyone was like, oh my God, there's like this World Cup athlete who's super awesome. Maybe we can get her to coach our our kids, our team. So I started to get solicited then. And I didn't fully commit or start a contract until July. So it was basically six months of like this 
purgatory. Uh, I don't know what to do with my life. I mean, for me in the moment, it's really interesting because it felt like 10 years and it also felt like 10 seconds. It was like this during when, when your body is going through, when your body and your mind and your emotions and your spirit goes through like these extreme depressive, de- like anxiety, depression bouts, like the concept of time is <laughs> like, it, it's, it's really interesting how time goes. Like every day is an eternity and every week is a, it's a blip. It just goes by. It's, it's kind of like right now with COVID. I don't know if anyone <laughs> feels that way, but like, man, the days are so long, but like it's September. <laughs> How is it September already? You know, it's kind of like that. The downward spiral really realistically happened. I mean, the, there was a big drop in after the Olympics, but it, the consequence of my actions continued for me like it, it 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 was it was the the pendulum that kept swinging me down was uh the consequences of my actions it led to the spiral to be like 3 or 4 years i would say so from the moment that i missed the olympics to the moment that i got divorced was 4 years and was it hard? So I downward coaching? spiraled for four years. Oh, yeah. was it hard? I was, them? I was, what you wanted and seeing what you wanted to go after, but it didn't happen. Was that hard? Yeah. At the, at the time, yes, because my mentality was that it was almost like a, like a punishment, like a reminder. But also, I, I did, I did learn some things about, how athletes are treated and how high performance really works. And I started to apply more empathy and apply more life skills into my coaching practice. So what happened was I started to really develop some, some awesome boundaries between my athletes and myself, but also some like lifelong friendships and lifelong uh, connections. I still connect with a lot of my athletes because it's, I, I recognize that high performance is more than just performing for one event at a time. It's like learning skills on how to live your life. So that process started almost immediately. Like at first I was like this, oh, I'm the best. I'm going to teach you guys and tell you all the mistakes not to make. And then I was like, wait a second, I made my own mistakes. You guys have to make mistakes and you need to learn how to handle that. That's what I didn't learn. I didn't learn how to make a mistake and walk away with it, with taking responsibility. When I made a mistake, it was everyone else's fault. It was the world's fault when I made a mistake. And that was a lesson that I didn't learn until I was like, until years and years and years later, even now, like when I make a mistake, my, it, my go-to is to blame someone else. And then I have to take pause and be like, okay, what is this? 
what is this situation? Because there's no right or wrong. What is this teaching me? What type of opportunity do I, can I learn from this about my, my deep-seated beliefs, about my wounds? How can I use this opportunity just to sit with it? Because it's okay to, one of the biggest things that I ever learned during that spiral downwards was that it's okay to be pissed off. It's okay to have anger and jealousy and envy and to be embarrassed and shamed. There is healthy shame out there. That's like, there is, it, it's okay to have these quote unquote negative emotions. But I was always trained that that meant I was a failure and to suppress all that stuff down. So whenever I felt that I had to like make it about someone else and blame them to make myself feel better. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because happy is the only emotion you're allowed to feel or to be the best or the skinniest or the prettiest or the world cup winningest or whatever, whatever it is, you know? So I got to sit with a lot of uncomfortable feelings and in order to, to, to feel them and to let that go through my body and to get rid of it. Like, it's interesting when you have, like, if you're like jealous of someone, for example, that was something I was always jealous when I was coaching athletes, because I was still around the World Cup team and I'd see these other women do things that I always wanted to do and I'd be jealous and I would cry and I would drink and I would try to like um, numb myself. And, and I didn't know I was doing that at the time though. P.S. That came years later when I had this wake up. It was, it was just like this, the world was out to get me and life was so unfair. Everything was so unfair and it's so easy for them. And they, they, it's so easy. They, their lives are so easy. Meanwhile, I was like burning. I was like this dragon of anger and jealousy. And I was trying to like suppress that down and come across and I'd be like, Oh, hi, I'm doing great today. Meanwhile, inside I'm like, gaining so much distrust in myself. I I couldn't even be honest with how I felt with other people. And it created this distrust and this massive inner disconnection with like who I was and like what I was trying to be. And it was basically brutal. And then, yeah. So eventually I was like, it's okay to feel jealous. Now, what is that feeling teaching me about who I am? You know what I'm saying? It was very interesting. And what inspired you to start your podcast? My podcast is called Elisa Unfiltered Living Life Out Loud. And what inspired me was when I, when I was, when I was doing, when I, throughout my healing, let's just say my, my healing, whatever you want to call that. Cause I'm still healing. Even though I do a lot of work, I do a lot of personal self work. It doesn't mean I'm above, it doesn't mean I'm above it and that I don't have feelings and that I I'm like this super guru. No, I, I still do the work and I still put the time in and there's a lot of things that I don't know. And there's a lot of things that I'm learning about myself. So when I began the whole journey, I started to blog about it (laughs) and I started to blog on Instagram. So instead of just posting a great picture of me being somewhere in the world, I started to, you know, talk about my feelings 
and talk about the shit that I was going through. And that's how I kind of built my Instagram following. And people were like, oh, I feel like that too. What did you do about that? So I was having these conversations. Um, but Instagram captions at the time, they were only like, yay big. They're a bit bigger now, but like five years ago, five, six years ago, they were smaller. And people were like, tell me more. I need to know more. When's your book coming out? Can, can you blog more about this? When's your podcast starting? And I mean, like three years ago when I started my show, podcasts were, were they existed. They weren't huge. I think that there was like, 400,000 podcasts. I think now there's like 10 million. I don't know, but something like that. So in the last like three years, a lot of shows have come up. Maybe there's not 10, maybe it's less than that. I don't know. There's a lot, there's a lot more shows, but I basically started my show as an extension of my blogging. So the first like 40 episodes, I do have guests, but they were only people that influenced me in my journey, in my growth. So I brought on all my teachers. So I talked, like my show is, I talk a lot just on my own. I talk about my story. I talk about my divorce. I talk about skiing. I talk about losing all the weight. So I, I talk about gaining all the weight and, and I bring in like my spiritual coach. She comes on often uh, sports trainers, nutritionists, like people that helped me see life in a non-traditional way and like helped me in the box that I wanted to create for myself instead of like the one that was like, I was supposed to be in. So that's, that was basic. The main motivation was to continue to talk about some of the emotional shit that I was blogging about. And what helped you stay motivated when you were losing all the weight? And was there a point where you're like, this isn't healthy. I have to change my ways. Or was there like a point for that? Yeah. So I was, I gained a lot of weight super quickly. So I didn't even have time to really process what I was doing. I was just in such a fog. Uh, so, and, and also the medication that I was addicted to was also like, one of the side effects was weight gain. And so losing it, I mean, okay, wait, can you re ask that question again? I lost yeah. my train of thought. I yeah. <laughs> yeah. So was there a point where you were like, I can't do this to myself anymore. I can't keep gaining this oh, yeah. weight. And you kind of like woke up into like yes. what it was. So it was that moment when I looked at myself in the mirror and I didn't recognize myself. And I realized that uh, even like when I got married, for example, I was, my wedding dress was a size 20. I'm right now in this body, I'm a size eight to 10 women's. It varies. Like sometimes I'm a size six, sometimes I'm a size 12, to be honest, like whatever. I don't really care about my size, but I was a size 20 when I got married and that was in 2008. Um, and when I looked at myself and I was like, whoa. Then I actually had a physical at my doctor's uh, office and I was uh, pre-diabetic. So I was abusing myself so much that my body could no longer process sugar. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, that was part of it. But what, what the biggest motivation was and the biggest like catalyst or to, to get me back was to connect to my spirit, to connect to 
myself, like this body, my body was a result of self-abuse and that's it. It was a, it was a result of unhealed trauma. It was a coping mechanism. It was also a tool to keep me in that cycle of abuse because yeah, there's all the body positivity that I could, I could do. But it, at the end of the day, at night, in bed, in my alone time, when I was binge eating chips and abusing myself, talking about how disgusting I was and how fat and gross I was, like that, those actions taught me a lot about myself. When I would binge eat, when I would binge drink, when I was smoking, like I smoked cigarettes. You know, people, anyone who smokes and who's addicted to cigarettes that doesn't know that that is harmful for your body is in a state of denial. It's the same with alcohol. Anything that changes your body or like damages your liver or your brain, like we know these things, but we do them anyways. You know, we have this, our brains have our bodies, we have this incredible denial system. And I was so in denial about how I was living my life that I couldn't see the damage I was doing to myself. So, so yeah. Once I, once I broke out of that though, once I like started to accept, once I accept who I am and feel my feelings and create healthy boundaries and create healthy relations, get rid of the toxicity in my life all around me and start to really focus on what I want. It like those are those are the steps that I had to take in order to change my life. Like we talk about weight loss. Like yeah, you can diet and exercise. That's what I was doing. But I was yo-yoing. I would always go back. I dieted and exercised all the time, and I was like yo-yoing for years, years and years. It's like it's crazy. There's like five years where I went from two thirty to one forty, then right back up. So I gained and lost like eighty pounds. Like three or four times in that journey. And I could never keep it off until I started to see my body in a very different way and treat myself with respect. Because respectful actions create a healthy environment, which creates a healthy mind and a healthy body. And however that is for you, like what works for, that's why what works for me isn't going to work for you. What I deem as healthy and respectful it's different because we all have different beliefs, different, you know, culture, different environments. Uh, yeah. And what is something lighting you up right now? I am excited about uh, launching my coaching program. So I just like after I was I was unemployed for six months since COVID, and I just pivoted my coaching career online. So I'm so excited about it. Cause I'm, I'm teaching all of this stuff. I have a signature course. It's called the big shift. I'm doing webinars. I'm one-on-one coaching with, with people on how to actually do the, exactly this to, to wake up. I love empowering people. I love when someone realizes that they are in control and they are responsible for themselves. And that is it. I love it. I had this conversation with a girlfriend actually today, we had coffee and I asked her a couple of questions. It's, and and to be honest, like what I do is 
put you in the position to figure it out for yourself because that's how you will learn. You can't just do A, B, C, D, E, F, G because it's going to be different for everybody. But I asked her some questions and I saw like the shift in her mind of being like, oh, and she figured it out and she got it. And we like had this like breakthrough conversation. She was really stuck in a spot and I just, that lights me up. I love it. I freaking love when people have like moments where they are empowered and are ready to shift. What is something that you're learning right now? I'm basically learning that I know absolutely nothing. I'm learning that knowledge is subjective, that what I've learned throughout my whole life is, and the way it's supposed to be is kind of bullshit. So I'm actually doing more unlearning than I'm doing learning. And if you could give one piece of advice to someone who's unemployed right now, what would you say? Well, I guess that depends. Uh, Just like unemployed as in because of COVID or just. Yeah. Because of COVID. Yeah. Because of COVID. I would say to take a deep breath and be in your body and be in this moment and just like understand, yeah, it's scary. It's really scary. And the more you can stay present in your body and in this moment, instead of some past moment that was like amazing or some future moment that you was here or that you're afraid of, just come back and find some connection to your body. I like to do that through breathing, even if meditating five minutes, like clearing your mind, stay, you are okay. Like you're alive, you're okay, you're in this world, you're beautiful, you're worthy and you matter. And not because you don't have a job doesn't make you any less beautiful, any less worthy. So just sit with that and you'll find the more you connect to your body and and instill your mind of like some past or future moment, the more you can connect to what you want and and maybe it's pursuing a passion maybe it's going and applying somewhere and maybe it's taking some risks and maybe it's you know getting a roommate or or moving back home with your family or whatever it is like if you can just be okay with who you are right now that is the most powerful thing in this whole world And if you could go back in time and talk to your 20-year-old self, what would you tell her? I, oh, I would say, I don't know. And the reason I don't know is because like, I'm, I have a, a huge, like amount of gratitude for all of the shit that I went through because it's really brought me to where I am today. I mean, when I was 20, I wish I had someone to say like, you're beautiful and you matter. And I see you. I see you. That's probably what I would say. I wanted to be seen and I wanted to be validated and I couldn't 
validate myself because I was just so outward. Like I thought, I thought the world had to validate me. I didn't know that it was me. So I would, I would probably say like, I see you and it's okay. And what you're doing is okay. And it's going to work out. Everything Mm -hmm. works out. And what's something you're manifesting right now? Definitely manifesting self-worth and winning the lottery. (laughs) I'm just kidding, (laughs) but not really. I'm I'm manifesting abundance, (laughs) abundance of love and money and awesome people. And I just want awesome people in my life. And I, that's, that's how, and I manifest that by creating really healthy boundaries with people that aren't in alignment with who, what I believe and how I feel, um, an abundance of health, anything, anything that is, uh, holds a vibration of love and respect. That's what I'm manifesting. Are there any questions that you wish I would have asked you? I don't know. Like, I think we like, I think I really like, I think you really blabbed there. (laughs) Um, Not really. I mean, there's, I would say now, like there's a lot of curious minds out there. I'm sure about like what it feels like to be divorced and to like not go to school and to get rid of toxic people in your life and like feel that failure, the burden, the weight of failure. But then I guess what I would speak to that is like the more present you can be and the more in tuned with what, like, like your gut, your gut feeling. And when you have that gut feeling, always listen to it. That, you know, your body knows, you know, and when you go against yourself is when you can start to get yourself into some deep shit. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. Thank you. I, I don't know. Like I hope that that kind of showed the shit show of my twenties. I mean, it was such a shit show. <laughs> I, I honestly, if I could do it all again, I would probably change a couple of things, but, but, you know, if I had gone to the Olympics, I think my life would be, would have been so much different. I would have kept that really small bubble and kept my vision so, uh, so outward focused. So goal, you have to do it this way focused. And because of that one experience, it shifted my whole life. And yeah, it was crazy and depressing. And I made a lot of very bad choices, very bad but I, I don't know, like now I'm just so in such a great place in my life. And even though some days are very hard and things aren't always perfect, I've, I know, I know who I am and I don't need anyone else to tell me who I am and how I need to be. So that's a very powerful thing, I think. Mm-hmm. And where can people find you? Okay. So yeah. Um, my podcast, again, is called the Lisa Unfiltered, Living Life Out Loud. You can find that on Spotify, Google Play, Apple, all the places. Actually, I just got on Amazon podcast, which is cool. And then my website is alisaunfiltered.com. It's E-L-I-S-A unfiltered.com. My name on Instagram is at Elisa Curry Lowitz. 
Uh, I am running a couple of things right now. My program is available. It's on my website. It's called The Big Shift. It is a six-week online program. I'm also doing a couple of really cool webinars on weight loss, weight gain, body love, and everything in between, which actually happens on the 29th of September. So it's coming up. I don't know if this show will be out by then, but if you're interested in that, it's like a very in-depth, exclusive body love program. And yeah, I think that's it. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'd love if you can leave me a review on iTunes. Please feel free to share it with any friends you think the story would resonate with. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day.